0: We continue our series through the Gospel according to Mark. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and following. That's Mark 8, 22 and following. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 844. And while you're uh, turning there, a few uh, things to just uh, update you on, make you aware of. First of all, um, we launched a new website or revised, refreshed version of our website uh, this week, Missio Church. Dot .org um it's uh there's stuff on there about our Casanova Church plant which started regular Sunday morning services last Sunday uh there's an updated new uh, resources page on there. Uh, it's pretty easy to give online, set up a recurring donation, um, or give one-time donations on the website as well. Uh, I'm specifically excited about the fact that we updated our staff pictures on there, so I don't look like I'm going to my high school prom any longer. Um, that's, that's a good thing. And so uh, you can check that out, missiochurch.org. Um, we sent that in the churchwide email as well, but uh, wanted to make you all aware of that And then the second thing is uh, simply a decades-to-come update. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with this initiative started back in 2014 initiative um, where we were able able to um, purchase this whole campus, all three buildings, for $350,000. And we started an initiative where we were trying to raise $600,000, pay off the mortgage, stabilize these facilities. There was a lot of maintenance and upkeep and um, repairs and all that type of stuff. And so uh, that was back in 2014. Last year in 2018, we, we basically basically have piecemealed it. We've gone through phases. And last year we had a a goal in this initiative to raise $40,000. And so in 2018, um, we were able to raise $41,500. And so we met last year's goal. And you should see on the screens that now we're we're entering the home stretch. The last quarter mile, um, we are so close to reaching that ultimate goal of $600,000. We have 18,000 $100 $100 remaining uh, to reach that goal and what um, if, if we can reach that goal, what that will allow us to do in this last phase is do a few more uh, final repairs and then have a reserve fund um, of about $25,000, $30,000 in case you know, the roof breaks, the boiler breaks, all those type of things in these old buildings. I'm also happy to report that this month uh, we paid our final mortgage payment. So the buildings are paid off. Uh, that's all done. That's great. Yep. So praise the Lord for that. And, uh, and so, just simply want to say um, to all of you uh, who have given to that, I want to thank you for your continued generosity and sacrifice. If you would like to contribute uh, to this initiative in the home stretch, You can go to our refreshed website at missiochurch.org, click on the Give tab, and there's a drop-down box. Uh, When you get there, you can give to certain funds, and one of them is labeled Decades to Come. You can also write a check to Missio Church and write Decades to Come or DTC in the memo line. All right, that's my plug. Now, it is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and following. And they came to Bethsaida. Do not even enter the village. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time where we can gather as your people to worship you, to declare that you indeed satisfy. It's both a a truth that we're declaring and also a plea that you would indeed satisfy. We know that you infinitely and eternally do so. Uh, We pray. This morning, as your people, that we would be given eyes to see, which is an important theme in this text this morning, ears to hear, hearts to understand, that you would satisfy us with your word and with your promises. I pray for Bernie, one of our other elders this morning, as he's preaching at Calvary Baptist Church in Brewerton. I pray for uh, Adam, who's preaching at our Cazenovia congregation this morning, Jordan, who's uh, on his way to Europe now to meet with several church leaders and planters um, all across that continent. We pray for them, and we pray for our time together this morning, and it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen. Well, we are a culture that uh, loves access to people that we perceive to be important. That's what we value, and that's what we love as a culture this became pretty clear to me uh, several years ago many many moons ago uh, when i was in college and i was working uh, later years of high school early college i was working for a christian television company called um, Sky Angel, and so I was on a channel called Kids and Teens Television, and what I did is I did all these segments, and then I interviewed all these Christian artists and Christian leaders and all this kind of stuff, and um, during the time where I was on that... Uh, TV channel, I was a part of leading a youth team up to a conference called Acquire the Fire in Tampa Bay, Florida. So when I worked for the TV station, I was in Naples, Florida. We took all these students up there, and it's basically just a bunch of middle school and high school students getting all amped up for Jesus. That might have even been the mission statement of the conference. I don't know. So so we're all there, and during one of the breaks of this two, three-day conference, I'm waiting in line for a hot dog. And all of a sudden, uh, these two young girls come running up to me saying, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, Levi Pancake, Levi Pancake from KTV. And so I uh, said, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and, um, and so um, they said, oh, oh, we're huge fans. We're huge fans of yours. We have your picture on our bedroom walls next to NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. And so uh, can you sign an autograph for us? And so I did what any respectable person would do in a situation like that who was seeking to honor his neighbor and serve them. And so I, I signed autographs, absolutely so, I, who should I make this out to? You know, that whole thing. And then, as I was signing their autographs, um, a line actually started to form of people who perceived me to be important. They had no idea who I was, but then they were standing in line and they were asking for my autograph as well. So, once again, I took the low position and I decided to serve them by signing many, many autographs for all of them as they waited patiently for me to shake my hand and do all that fun stuff. Now, um, it, it, was, it was pretty funny, um, and I drew the line when someone asked me to sign their Bible. I said, nope, not going to do that, but I did sign um, many autographs then, and, and it was so funny because these people had no idea who I was, uh, absolutely not, they probably thought I was part of the band or something like that, and yet they perceived me to be important, so they they came up to me now uh, in jesus 's day people are perceiving him to be important, but he 's actually legitimately important like this isn 't some thirty seconds of fame type stuff like he 's doing some miracles he 's healing some people, and his reputation is going far. And wide. And so you get this scene, especially as we've walked through the gospel according to Mark, where everywhere the guy goes, Galilee, um, he goes to primarily Gentile regions in the region of Decapolis or Tyre, Sidon. Today he's in Bethsaida everywhere he goes, there's just a swarm of people around him. It made me think of what I saw at the end of the Super Bowl last week. You'll see a picture there when Tom Brady, you know, they won their like 37 championship in four years or something like that. Um, when they, they won it, and you had the, the poor reporter from CBS just trying to get a post-game interview with them, and, and she's just like, it's just a mosh pit. And that picture right there, that's right before Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, and Tom Brady are going to weirdly kiss on the lips. I don't think Think they meant to, but that happened, and that was, that was interesting to watch. And so, um, just the crowd is swarming him, and, and just you get the sense that no one can breathe. Well, I thought of that when reading these scenes throughout the Gospel of Mark. People are pressing in on Jesus, you know, minus the selfie sticks. They want to be around him, and many go to him for um, healing and uh, to be made well. Uh, now, uh, of course, uh, Jesus has much more to offer than a signature. He has much more to offer than a Super Bowl trophy or a Super Bowl championship ring. Um, but he was coming to fulfill God's purposes for all of humanity. And as he's doing this, you get a good summary statement in Mark chapter 7, verse 37, where uh, the people, uh, they were, here's the phrasing, astonished Beyond measure. And they said of him, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. we have another example of Jesus doing a healing. In this instance, in our text, he heals a blind man. But there are layers to this healing um, that go beyond just the surface healing here. And so here's the point, that the healing of the blind man like other healing miracles of Jesus, confirms Jesus fulfilling the signs of salvation while also introducing an important section in Mark on discipleship. Let's walk through these five verses and then we'll get into, uh, I think, two important points from this text. Mark chapter 8 verse 22, it says, they came to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the sea of Galilee. It's right on the uh, the region of Galilee and uh, a gentile region, and the name Bethsaida means house of the fisher. It derives its name from its chief industry, fishing. 3 of Jesus' disciples were from there, Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So they come ashore in this town and some people, that's what the word is, uh, some people brought to him a blind man. We don't know who the some people are. No background, no history, maybe the blind man's friends, Uh, maybe some people who just took pity on him. We don't know, but the some people bring to Jesus a blind man. Now, the blindness, particularly in the ancient world, it's endemic. Uh, It's everywhere. Uh, The lack of understanding of proper hygiene, the unavailability of effective medicine, the exposure to the elements, all of that contributed to a lot of people being blind. Uh, clouded, staring, fly-swarmed eyes were a common sight wherever one went in the ancient world. And these, some people bring this blind man to Jesus and it says they begged him to touch him. They're begging, they're pleading, they're imploring Jesus because his reputation has preceded him. They perceive him to be an important person who can accomplish this, even though, according to Mark, he hasn't healed a blind person yet in a specific instance, but they beg him to to touch him. That idea of touching him, it's a laying of hands on this person. That uh, Jesus, throughout Mark, people have come and touched Jesus, have been healed. And then Jesus at times goes and takes the initiative and lays his hands on people and heals them. That's what they're begging for. So what we see Jesus do in verse 23 is he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, you get this picture of just a gentle, compassionate Jesus clasping the man's hand, uh, gradually, gently guiding him around obstacles, uh, verbally directing him where to step, where not to step, steadying him if the blind man takes a misstep. And, and you get this sense that just when you think Jesus is being kind, gentle, compassionate, he goes and spits in the man's eyes. Just spits on him. Like if I have something in my eye and I ask for you to help and you spit in my eyes, I'm not going to feel too happy towards you in the moment. Not a lot, a lot of love and affection towards you. But Jesus, gently guiding the blind man, takes him out of the village, and then just, just kind of matter of fact, and when he spit on his eyes, Okay, so uh, we think it's like loogie right to the face here. Right? It's not like, uh, like a mom who kind of does the thumb thing and tries to get the mac and cheese off your kid's face, you know, because it's everywhere. It's not that. Loogie to the eyes right there. Well, why spit? Well, this is the third instance in the Gospels that Jesus uses spit to heal. One is in Mark seven thirty three. More about that in a moment. Then you have this instance, and then another occurs in John chapter 9, verse 6. Now, spit um, was viewed in the ancient world as being particularly powerful. It, had, um, it was perceived to have medicinal or almost magical powers. And so, if you could interact with the saliva of a person who was performing miracles, that that would have particular power. Now, in this case, it wasn't Jesus' spit that had the power. It was Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ, who... Had it, And and the text doesn't say why he uses spit in this one or in Mark 7. It just states it matter of fact. Um, Don't really know. I mean, it could be a sensory thing. The man was blind and and as he he felt the wetness from Jesus' spit and and Jesus laying his hands on him, like maybe just it was a, a sensory experience, but all that to say that's speculation. The text doesn't say. It simply says when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Now, that has some significance. You get this picture of Jesus laying his hands on them. And, uh, and Mark, just the laying on of hands, has particular significance. In the gospel according to Mark, the laying on of hands occurs more than any other gospel. And all but one of the instances in Mark where Jesus is laying hands on someone is in the context of, of healing. The so one exception is in Mark 10 where Jesus lays his hands and blesses little children. And so there's something about this, that laying on of hands. In the Old Testament, uh, basically when you um, laid hands in the Old Covenant, you were transferring either from animals or persons from the profane to the sacred. You were laying hands on something, an animal or a person, and essentially consecrating that animal or that person unto the Lord. So this is what Jesus is doing. And after he does that, then he asks him a question do you see anything? Verse 24, and he, the blind man, he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So the blind man isn't so blind anymore, but he's not necessarily seeing with 20, 20 vision either. He sees people, but they don't look like people, they look like trees walking. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So, in essence, Jesus tries again, and he lays his hands on his eyes again, and all is well. The completeness of the cure, the healing of this blind man, is emphasized by these three phrases. It's very redundant. It could have just said he opened his eyes. It doesn't. He opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. That's, a, that's an emphasis. It's a pay attention. It's, um, in 23, 24, and 25, you have two words for eyes, five verbs for seeing, two verbs related to the restoration of sight. All that to say, this is emphasized, and something significant is going on here. And then it says in the last verse, And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, this is the only miracle in all the Gospels that proceeds in stages rather than being instantly effective. So that's the big question. Why then the two stages in this particular healing? So two two things for us to be mindful then. One, Jesus heals the blind man in stages, suggesting spiritual insight maturity happens progressively. All right, so these five verses that we're looking at this morning, it's what's called a bridge passage. It is um, taking, uh, we're almost at the continental divide in Mark. Where, if you recall um, from like week one, way back when, when we were going over the prologue and we were talking from a 30,000 foot view, how is Mark structured? And it's structured basically in three main acts. There's Jesus in Galilee, that's Mark 1 through chapter 8, or at least two-thirds of Mark chapter 8. And then you've got the back half of Mark chapter 8 through 10, where he's on his way to Jerusalem. And then thirdly, Mark 11 through uh, 16, where he's in Jerusalem. So, Galilee, on the way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Where we are, we're right smack dab in the middle where we're at this continental divide and um, Mark is bridging this section. We're getting ready to make this massive transition. And in this bridge passage, it's not only connecting two major sections of Mark, but it's also on a smaller scale connecting last week's passage that Bernie taught on. And it's not next week's passage because we'll have a guest preacher. And two weeks passage in Mark 8, 27 and following, it's connecting those passages as well. And what Jesus is doing here, in addition to healing this blind man, which is significant for this man, obviously, What Jesus is doing is it's an acted-out parable. If you recall, uh, last year we were going through the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 27, the prophet Jeremiah breaks up this massive delegation where you have Judah and all these surrounding nations. And they're all meeting together to decide if they want to attack Assyria. And so the Lord tells Jeremiah to break up the delegation, put some yoke bars on his back, and basically tell everyone, hey, if you attack Assyria, what's going to happen to you is you will be like someone who has yoke bars on your back. You will be dragged away. You'll be enslaved by Assyria. Don't do it. Thus says the Lord. Now, of course, they end up doing it anyway, but that was what's called an acted out prophecy. It kind of packed a little more punch when Jeremiah walks into this delegation with yoke bars on his back. Well, here, this packs an additional punch where Jesus is um, doing an acted out parable. It's a teaching lesson in addition to healing this blind man. This isn't an instance where, you know, Jesus just didn't get it right the first time, that this case of blindness was particularly difficult, so he had to try and try again. Uh, Jesus isn 't like the furnace guy that came to my house last week and didn 't get it right the first time that 's not le- Jesus. He can get it right. He has authority and he has power uh, last week we um, uh, my wife and I were noticing the smell coming through the vents from our our furnace and To be honest with you, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of when our house got skunked. So anytime we smell anything funky, there's a little PTSD going on, and we don't really trust our sense of smell. So then we think we're going crazy. Do we smell that? Do you really smell that? Do you smell that? So a guest comes over. They're not even taking their shoes off yet. Do you smell something? And they they don't know what to say. (laughs) Yes or no? It's a lose-lose situation at that point. We realize we put them in that situation, but we just need to know. And so we smelled something funky. So just for peace of mind, we call the furnace guy. The furnace guy comes... And he's there for 20 minutes and he doesn't smell anything, but he doesn't make us feel dumb. He just says, it's all good. You know, write him the check for 20 bucks. He goes on our way. Well, four hours later, the furnace breaks. You know, so I'm trying to call the guy. What'd you do? It was working fine before you got here. He's not available. I can't get a hold of him. And I don't know anything about furnaces. And so I'm looking up YouTube videos and trying to like communicate with my wife over the phone what to do. We don't know what's going on. I'm at the office here. Thankfully, Marty Miner's here. Marty Miner, I tell him about it, and he says, I know a guy called this guy. Well, I called Marty's guy. That guy came. He fixed it on the second try. He got it right. Point is, Jesus is not like the first furnace guy. He can get it right if he tries. It's not a level of incompetence. Uh, he can do it. So the point being is that this is to illustrate for his followers, particularly his disciples, that um, there's a gradual sight, an understanding of illumination for Jesus' disciples. Last week, Mark 8, 18, Jesus says to his disciples, Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Like the blind man, the disciples do not have eyes to see. The ability to see, both physically and spiritually, is a gift of God, not of human ability. In this passage, we hear nothing of the man's faith or behavior. There's no hint that his faith uh, grows as the situation progresses. The man was blind, and instead of speaking authoritatively after Jesus laid his hands on him the first time, Jesus asks him this question. It, It appears a bit weak, like, do you see anything? But, we go back remember it's a bridge passage to the previous passage mark 8:17 Jesus asks his disciples it sounds pretty similar do you still not see he's talking to his disciples do you still not see having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear fast forward a little bit he's healing this blind man do you see anything the guy replies i see people but they look like trees walking so then Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again and remember the three phrases he opens his eyes his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Clear as clear can be. There are eight different Greek words, nine instances for seeing here. It's like the, the old Ben Stein commercials, uh, the late 90s, like the, the clear eyed redness commercials, you know, burning red eyes aren't healthy, that whole thing. And then they kind of drop their eyes and, and totally see. Everything's great. That's what we're seeing here. 2020 vision clear as day. And what you're going to see for the disciples in Mark is that they're also going to move through similar stages. They don't get it. They don't see. They're spiritually blind. Then the second stage is they're going to, they're going to pass from non-understanding to some understanding to then at the end of Mark to really complete understanding. They'll get the full picture post resurrection. The disciples aren't getting it, and, and then uh, Jesus begins to teach them, and he's walking with them. That, that's the passage we'll talk about in two weeks, where Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they're on their way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and, and Jesus famously asked them, who do people say that I am? And so they tell him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And then it says in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus turning, seeing his disciples, he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Disciples are blind, and then all of a sudden they have this moment. You are, you are the Christ, Peter says, and you get it. Oh, they're getting it now. They're starting to really see who Jesus is. He's not, you know, John the Baptist reincarnate. He's not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets. He's the Christ. And then, just a little bit further down the road, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and they don't like that. And so Peter begins to rebuke them. Ah, they're not really seeing. They're seeing people, but they look like trees walking. And then through the rest of Mark, what's going to happen? Is Jesus is going to patiently teach them. He's going to patiently reveal to them. And then post-resurrection, end of Mark, then the disciples are going to get it. And then we know in Acts 2, then they're going to be endowed with the Holy Spirit. And then they're going to be convinced and convicted. And they're, they're going to have the, the Spirit to the seal of the promise and to enable them to get it. And so this this healing of two stages marks an important point in this gospel where Jesus is saying to them, you're seeing, but you're still not getting it yet. You still don't really understand who the Christ is. You still don't really understand that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And so he's patient with them. And as they make their way to Jerusalem, he continues to teach them. Okay, well, that's great for, you know, kind of the the narrative arc for this gospel. It's really helpful when considering the disciples, but what does that mean for us? How did this two-stage healing uh, apply to us? And though we're not, um, we have the Holy Spirit for those who've trusted in Christ, and we're looking back on the death, the cross, the resurrection, while the disciples at this point, you know, they were looking forward and they didn't have complete understanding. So we can see things that they couldn't see at this time. But I think it is important to note for us that spiritual maturity, spiritual insight, and maybe a sub-point of this text or a helpful reminder for us as Christ's people now is to think about the fact that these things often happen gradually. The kingdom of God was inaugurated when Christ came and it will one day be fully and completely consummated, fulfilled. We live in this this in-between stage now. It's like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 22 and 23. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoptions as sons, the redemptions of our bodies. It's this picture that Paul points to in Romans where we have the first fruits of the Spirit, and yet it's also this picture, this in between stage, where we, along with creation, are groaning inwardly and we're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our body. So it's this picture that we need to press on. We have been set free from the wrath of God. We've been justified. That means we've been set free from the penalty of our sin. For those who are in Christ, we no longer will be objects of God's wrath. We also know that the good news of Christ tells us that we've been set free from the power of sin. Sin is no longer our master. We are no longer enslaved to sin. But we also know that we're not yet free from the presence of sin. That will come in glorification. The old man has been given a mortal death blow, but it still creeps up. That's why Paul used the language in Romans 7, the very things I want to do, I don't do, the very things I don't want to do, I end up doing. So we're still battling the old man, the flesh, the world, and the enemy. And so it's this encouragement to us that we don't know everything, we're not glorified yet, we will spend eternity worshiping Christ, and so, brothers and sisters, press on. Keep pursuing the Lord. Keep growing in your spiritual sight, your spiritual hearing, your spiritual understanding, and wisdom, and knowledge of God. Paul says, Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal, For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on, brothers and sisters. And so the best thing that we can do on this side of eternity while we eagerly await, even though we're groaning inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, is to pursue Jesus, to make him our treasure, to strive, strive with all strength to know God and to humble ourselves under His mighty hand. If you're a follower of Christ, that is our call, to pursue Him and to grow in understanding using the normal, regular, ordinary means of grace, His word and prayer and corporate worship and fellowship, etc. Don't neglect those things, but continue to pursue Him that the Lord may give you greater understanding and knowledge of Him. If you're not a follower of Christ and have yet to trust in Him, the application of this text is to pray and to beg and to plead with our God that He would give you eyes to see, hearts to understand, that He would make the good news of Christ sweet and precious and desirable to you, and that you would turn and trust in Him. Husbands and wives, I think there's a word for us as well, just a word to be patient with our spouses, seeking to honor them and to serve them. Our spouses know they're not perfect. They're very aware of that, and we're very aware of that. But pray for them that they would continue to have eyes to see the glorious truth of Jesus, you don't always need to point out their imperfections. Rather, pray, encourage, seek to uplift, honor, strengthen them. Parents, disciple your children in the ways of the Lord. We've already said that this morning when we did the baby presentation of Aaliyah Ferrugio. You want to um, help your children see Jesus. Part of that is just discipling them. Your children are being discipled one way or the other. Someone is discipling them, whether it's Disney or your school teachers or you. Like, so disciple them. Correct thinking. Point them to Jesus so that your chi- children understand who Jesus is, not because of who their friends say that he is or not because of what the TV says that he is, but so that you can point out who God has revealed himself to be. If you are a single person here today, the word is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't succumb to the temptation of fixing your eye on that potential future spouse, leading to idolatry and covetousness. Rather, fix your eyes on Jesus and trust that the Lord will give you healing, will meet your needs, and will give you delight and satisfaction in Him. Church there's a word for us to continue to press on, grow in our understanding, and help others do the same. So let's be patient with one another. We will not always see things clearly. We have blind spots. So let's be kind, gentle. Let's give one another the benefit of the doubt. And let's lovingly, gently, humbly, take the the, the plank out of our own eye before we try to correct the speck out of one another's eyes. But when we do have to do that, let's take the low position and let's serve our brother and our sister. And as we're considering this, the seeing Jesus and progressive understanding and maturation, this passage does reveal to us one clear way as to how we are to see Jesus. And here's the last point. Jesus' healing of the deaf, that is in Mark 7, 31 through 37, and the blind is a fulfillment of the promises from Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. The healing of the blind man and at the end of Mark 7, there's strong echoes. Now, they're clear pictures for everyone that Jesus is indeed fulfilling the promises from Isaiah 35, 5 through 7. So if you have been astutely following the series through Mark. You may have noticed that two weeks ago, I ended in Mark 7, verse 30. And then last week, Bernie picked up in Mark chapter 8, verse 1. And you may have noticed we just skipped a whole chunk there. Mark 7, 31 through 37. Maybe you're even feeling gypped. No longer. Now I'm going to read Mark 7, 31 through 37, because it's a parallel passage to our passage this morning. Mark 7, 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, there it is again, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Apathipha, that is, be opened." And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And I've already read this verse, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, "He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Mark 7, 31 and following. Mark 8, 22 and following. They have several things in common. That's why they're called parallel passages. One, group of unnamed people bring a man to Jesus. Two, begging Jesus to heal him by touch. Three, Jesus takes the man away privately. Four, Jesus lays his hands on the organs that are effective. Five, he uses spit. Six, after the miracle, he commands silence about The healing. These two passages reveal much about how Jesus is to be seen. His glory, His power, His authority. Jesus makes the deaf hear, the mute speak, and the blind see, which leaves people astonished, as if that word wasn't enough. He leaves people astonished beyond measure. All of that is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. You can turn there if you'd like, or you'll see it on the screen. It's page 595 if you're using the Pew Bible. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the the desert. And the immediate context of this Isaiah passage are uh, God's people are returning from exile. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. But, but like so many other similar promises that you see in the book of Isaiah, this points further, way further down the route to the restoration of all things. That restoration of all things is marked by two things, judgment of the wicked and salvation for the righteous. Eternal joy and peace for all of God's people. So these two healing episodes and Mark, they're they're snapshots. They're like the previews that I saw yesterday when I took Judah, my five-year-old son, to see a movie. They're, They're just little glimpses. They don't show the whole thing, but we get little snapshots of what the coming restoration will be. It's been inaugurated now. It's been started now, but it hasn't been brought to full completion. It hasn't been consummated yet. So it creates this longing for the day when Christ will return. Mark Strauss, in commenting on these two passages, says this He says, healings and exorcisms, which are very common in the Gospel of Mark, may be spectacular for those who observe them. And life-changing for those who experience them. Yet, they are both temporary and temporal. Those healed of their physical infirmities eventually died. And the world continued as a place of sin, suffering, and fallenness. Yet, the brief snapshot before us in both Mark 8 and Mark 7 points to the future reality When the salvation achieved through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection will be consummated. That word consummated means completed with the restoration of all creation. At that time, and then he's going to quote Isaiah 35 verse 10, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Consider that. Consider the day when everlasting joy will crown our heads, when gladness and joy overtakes us, when sorrow and sighing flees away. For us, as God's people, as God's called out ones, we must remember that we're living in this interim period. And in this interim period, this between the ages, if you will, God's great salvation has come, but it hasn't been fully concluded. So what's to charge for us? We keep our eyes fixed on eternity, seeing Jesus for who he is, and longing, praying for the day when... Every tear from every eye is wiped away. This is Revelation 21.4. When death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Jesus has come according to Mark to usher that in. He makes the blind see. He makes the lame walk. He makes the death here he makes the butte speak, and he's come to bring spiritual sight and spiritual healing to his people. While simultaneously we wait for the day for Jesus to come in glory with his angels and return to right all wrongs, that sighing and sorrow would flee away, and that gladness and joy would overtake us. So church, may we long for that day, church. May we pursue Jesus as our greatest treasure. May we help one another pursue Jesus and see him clearly. And may we continue to live faithful lives of worship until the day that our rescuer and our redeemer returns. Will you pray with me? Father, we know that people love access to people that they perceive to be important. If there's one thing that Mark is teaching us, it's that Jesus is indeed important. But his importance transcends a scale that humanity's ever seen before. He has come to heal the blind, the deaf, make the mute speak, but ultimately give us spiritual healing. Redemption, meeting our greatest need, which is that uh, a restored relationship back to our creator, God. So may we press on. May we pursue you. May we help others do the same. Pointing to you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've accomplished and saving your people. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.